0: Good morning and welcome to Bachelor Creek. We're so excited and grateful that you've chosen to worship with us uh, during this Christmas season. And a little bit, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. Uh, I have a good friend named Ben, and uh, years ago he graduated from Purdue with a teaching degree. Uh, He moved down to Texas, and after teaching for a year, he decided that uh, being in the schools just wasn't for him. And so he started serving at a high-end restaurant in downtown Dallas. The job paid well. He worked less hours. Things were flexible. If he had something going on or wanted to take a break, he could just have somebody fill his shift, and it was pretty convenient. Around that same time, he began investing in real estate, flipping homes uh, to sell and to rent, and he's had a lot of success. Pretty soon, he'll be able to uh, exclusively manage his rental properties. And as I think about Ben and his experience, it really aligns with the growing trend of millennials and Gen Z in the workplace. A record number of Americans are opting for something other than the traditional 9-to-5 office job. Freelancing has become the name of the game. A record 60 million Americans freelanced in 2022. That represents 39% of the total U.S. workforce. And more than 50% of millennials, those between the ages of 27 and 42, freelanced last year. Now, you may wonder why. And there's a lot of factors that we can point to. Additional income opportunities, flexible hours, the ability to better balance work and life, the freedom to work remotely. But there's something, I believe, bigger below the surface that is driving this trend control. People want to be in control of their lives. Margaret Lalani, the VP of Talent Solutions at Upwork, she said, the share of freelancers has been increasing because people more now than ever want to have choice and control over what they do and how they work and when they work and really over the quality of life. She went on to say that with freelancing, people can have control over what they do when they do it and where they do it we love control in sports a good team does what they take control they control the tempo they control the ball a bad team is what a bad team is out of control we want control in our lives when we go somewhere to eat we want choices we we want to control the menu Burger King says, have it your way, and that is exactly what we want. We don't like being told what to do, so we'll give people choices so that they can feel like they're in control. We want to take control over our children's lives. We want to control what they watch, what they're exposed to, how much time they spend online. So what do we do? We use parental controls. And as we come to this Christmas season, as much as we want control, It's so easy to lose control, isn't it? Our Christmas shopping gets out of control. You lose control of your finances. You look at your bank statement around the holidays, and you get that lump in in your stomach. You lose self-control with all of the food and the Christmas parties and the cookies and the pies. Your schedule gets out of control. Christmas is supposed to be about the Prince of Peace, but your life seems anything but peaceful. It's chaotic. You run from event to event, and you get so busy with Christmas activities that you miss the heart of Christmas. There are some people who love control so much we have a name for them. We call them control freaks. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands of who that uh, describes, and if you're married and you want to stay married, I'd advise you not to point to your spouse. This December, we've been in a series of messages called The Night Before Christmas. We're exploring the emotions of the first Christmas. Last week, David showed us how Zechariah, Anna, and Elizabeth all experienced long periods of waiting. We saw how the entire Jewish people waited 400 years from the end of the Old Testament till the New Testament, in the book of Matthew, to hear God speak. And so the challenge is for us to wait with anticipation, to learn how to wait well for God's working in our lives. Today, we look at a different emotion. You can probably guess it. It's the feeling of being in control. And on the very first Christmas, we meet a man that we would characterize as a control freak. His name was King Herod. And Herod learned that no matter how hard we try to control life, there is someone greater who is truly in control. We read this man's story in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. As we read this passage together, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Matthew, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, "'Get up,' he said. "'Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. "'Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him.' "'So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, "'where they stayed until the death of Herod. "'And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, "'Out of Egypt I have called my son.' "'When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious.' And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem in its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. In Jesus' life, there were many who felt threatened by him. Nobody felt more threatened in Jerusalem than King Herod. When Jesus first arrived, Herod the Great, as he humbly called himself, ruled the province for nearly 40 years. And Herod was a world-class builder. Most famously, he rebuilt and expanded the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. This was the temple that Jesus was dedicated in. This was the temple that Jesus came and taught the religious leaders when he was 12 years old. This was the temple that Jesus turned over the tables of the money changers. This was the temple that Jesus prophesied would be destroyed in AD 70, and that's exactly what happened. Today, all that remains of this temple are four retaining walls, including the Western Wall. Beyond this, Herod built several fortresses. He built the fortress at Masada in Macharis. He He built a magnificent city on the Mediterranean Sea, and he named it Caesarea Maritima. He incredibly had a harbor dug out, and he built a beautiful palace right on the coast. Underneath this public strength as a diplomat and a builder, Herod was a paranoid and frightened egomaniac. He was also a ruthless butcher, killing both young and old alike. Matthew 2, verses 1 and 2 tells us, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Those two verses stirred up a hornet's nest. Do you see the problem in Herod's mind? He senses that he's about to lose power, lose control, and lose influence to this newborn king. Never mind the fact that Herod is around 70 and this is an infant. Herod is threatened. The news of the magi coming in search of the baby unsettled him. Matthew 2, verse 3 says, When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. You say, well, why would Jerusalem be disturbed? It's pretty easy. You know the phrase, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy? The Scriptures say, Herod ain't happy. Let me explain further. When Herod took the throne... His first act of leadership was to have the entire Jewish Sanhedrin put to death. The Sanhedrin is the Jewish Supreme Court. That's 70 of the top religious leaders in Jerusalem. Later, he put to death his brother-in-law, his mother-in-law, his wife, and three of his own sons. All for fear that they might want to undermine his position. Caesar Augustus once sarcastically commented that it was safer to be Herod's pig than his son. No wonder all of Jerusalem was disturbed with Herod. He's the perfect example of power gone bad. He abused power for personal gain. There are some people who never learn how to handle power correctly. Herod let power get to him, and he was so paranoid about his throne, his ego, that he saw Jesus Christ as a threat. We continue in verse 7. Herod called the magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Herod's immediate response to the Magi was to attempt to manipulate them into divulging the location of his rival. But after they visit the baby, the Magi don't return to Herod because God warns them in a dream. They begin to realize that a new king is always a threat to those who love power. So Herod's going to handle this in the most effective and efficient way he knows. The only way he handles things. The scriptures tell us that he places an edict that initiates one of the most heinous acts in all of the Bible. This will blow your mind as he tries to find this new king. Look at verse 16. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Note that the Magi went to their faraway countries through a different route. This infuriated Herod. So since he can't find Jesus, he will just deal with the situation collectively by wiping out all of the boys two years old and under. Verse 17. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. What a senseless tragedy. Try to imagine the sounds of those experiencing such great loss. The emotional screams of parents as their children are murdered before their eyes. If you're here today and you have a son or a grandson who is two years old or under, Would you raise your hand? Can you feel the heartache perpetrated by Herod? Dozens of deaths. If Herod wasn't hated before, from that day on, I guarantee you, he was despised. But he didn't get the baby Jesus. Because an angel of the Lord warned Mary and Joseph and they fled to Egypt with the baby. You see, there's a lesson that we should all learn from this story. A human plot cannot stop a divine plan. The full Christmas story, it's so much more than a quiet and peaceful nativity scene. It's a raving ruler, a fugitive family, and dozens of tombstones with the names of babies and toddlers on them. Herod wasn't about ready to give up his throne. The Romans helped him come to power because they loved his merciless efficiency in extracting taxes. Herod was ruthless. Toward the end of his reign, some five days before his impending death, he arrested all of the leading citizens of Jerusalem, and he left orders that they were to be executed at his death. He knew that no one would weep with him without this other tragedy taking place at the same time. Herod is a troubling illustration of self-absorption on steroids. But today, while he's dead, his spirit still lives on. Herod typifies many people in our world today. Not so much with the violence, but because, like Herod, they feel threatened by Jesus. You know, most people, they don't mind taking a few days off of work to commemorate the birth of Jesus. They'll embrace him as a resource when they get in trouble. They'll accept him as a spiritual life coach. And when we look here in our own culture, especially in the Bible Belt, there are a lot of people who are willing to add Jesus to their lives. They're willing to to, to call themselves Christian. But when the reality begins to sink in that this little baby demands to be the master of their lives... We often feel shaken. We're typically not threatened by a little baby, but at the same time, neither do we want to bow before a king. So when the true meaning of Christmas is understood, suddenly the baby in the manger becomes a threat. I'm not talking about the controversy of whether or not you you should put a a nativity scene uh, in a public display. I'm talking about whether or not we allow this same Jesus to have authority in our private lives. Do I really want a king? If I'm honest, maybe I do. But maybe I'm looking more for a mascot, a good luck charm, a warm blanket, even a savior. But I'm not so sure that I want a king, someone to be be the Lord, the the king of my life, because truth be told, I kind of like the throne. I, I like the control. You see, it's not just King Herod who's been threatened by the birth of the Christ child. We, too, don't want him to tell us what's right and wrong. We say, I'll date who I want to date. I'll marry who I want to marry. We'll raise our kids the way we want to raise them. We'll go to church when it's convenient to go to church. I'll manage my resources the way I want to manage them. I will sit on the throne of my life. I will determine my morality." And when I come to the end of my life, I can sing, I did it my way. That's the anthem for the Herods of this world. And I wonder how many Herods we have here today. Mankind's first reaction to someone else sitting on the throne of our life was rebellion. Herod was threatened by the coming of Christ. Let's not make the same mistake we must be willing to give up our puny dynasties for a higher authority. Is it any wonder that that many were and still are threatened by the birth of Jesus? Like Herod, when we feel threatened, our response is to try to exert more control. We think, if I have control, then I'm safe. If if I'm in control, then everything's going to turn out okay because I'll make sure of it. Most historians point out that June 6, 1944, is the event that sealed the Allies' victory in World War II. We know it as D-Day. More than 156,000 troops landed on the shores of Normandy. It established a Western Front, forcing the Germans to defend the Soviets on the Eastern Front and the Americans and the British on the Western Front. But what you may not know is Operation Bodyguard. It was a large-scale deception plan that was a part of the broader strategy of D-Day that was designed to mislead the Germans about the location and the timing of the Allies' invasion of Western Europe. You see, the Allies created fictional military units, complete with fake equipment and fake personnel, to give the impression of a much larger force than actually existed these phantom units were placed in areas far away from the intended invasion sites to divert German attention. The Allies also generated a significant amount of false radio traffic, including messages discussing fictional troop movements, equipment deployment, and military strategies. This was intended to confuse German signals intelligence and make it difficult for them to determine the location of the impending invasion. But here's my favorite. In the lead-up to D-Day, the Allies deployed inflatable dummy paratroopers and equipment. These decoys were placed in areas far from the actual drop zones to create the illusion of paratroopers landing in locations where there was no real operations occurring. Phantom units, dummy paratroopers, simulated landings far from the intended invasion sites. It was all an illusion. The inflatable paratroopers weren't real. Many of the military units weren't real. Much of the radio chatter wasn't real. It was an illusion. Did you know that human control is an illusion? The irony is that the more that we grasp for control, the more elusive it becomes. We want to be in control. We think we're in control but then we get that health diagnosis that we didn't expect. We think we're in control and then the stock market plunges and your investments take a hit. We think we're in control, but then someone that that we love dearly gets in a tragic accident. You find out that your spouse has been having a secret affair. Your kid makes a decision that, that breaks your heart the company that you've worked faithfully for for 20 years suddenly lets you go. Life has a way of showing us how little in control we really are. So what do we do? How do we move forward? Well, we can go about our lives like Herod, attempting to control every aspect of our life, only to find that it leaves us empty. Or we can respond like another character in the Christmas story. Her name is Mary. And like Herod, Mary is scared. An angel has told Mary that she's going to give birth to the Messiah. There's so much uncertainty. How could this happen? I'm a virgin, she says. She knows that she'll be ridiculed. She knows that this will put shame on her fiancé, Joseph. And who is she to bring the Savior of the, world, of the world and to raise him. She's just a quiet, humble, nobody teenager. Herod, he feels threatened. He's afraid his power and his kingship is in jeopardy, and so he wants to take control, eliminate the threat, eliminate the unknown. And so he orders the execution of every boy two years old and under in the vicinity of Bethlehem. But Mary, instead of taking control, she surrenders it. In Luke chapter 1, verse 38, she says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. You see, church, fulfillment comes in surrendering to the one who is in total control. And this is exactly what Mary experienced. But not Herod. Herod was a king. But he reigned beneath the King of Kings. Because on that first Christmas, in the small town of Bethlehem, the ruler of all creation stepped foot in this world. Psalm 103, verse 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. His kingdom rules over all. As a kid, we used to sing the song, He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. Herod never surrendered to Jesus, and thus he never found fulfillment in life. The more power that he grasped for, the more elusive it became. His money, his power, his great building projects, they all left him cold, heartless, and empty. But in her surrender, Mary burst out into praise. She recalls all that the Lord has done. I want you to notice how many times Mary says, He has in her song. God has done. God has acted. He is in control. Luke chapter 1, verse 46. Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. What Mary teaches us is that Christmas is really about giving up control, not gaining control. So I wonder how you're approaching Christmas this year. If you're to take a moment of self-reflection, I want you to ask yourself, where am I trying to take control instead of trusting in God's timing? What areas in your life are are you struggling with this the most? And once you identify what those areas are where you're trying to take control, express that to God. Surrender that to God in prayer and trust that His plan that his plan is good. Trust that he is fully in control. I was talking to a friend this week who was supposed to have surgery, and uh, that surgery has been postponed. And he really wants the surgery to happen because he's in pain and and he wants healing. But for now, that physical healing is going to have to wait. And in the midst of the disappointment and in the midst of the frustration, this is what he told me. He said, I'm trying to trust in God's timing instead of my own. And I needed to hear that. And may his words challenge you as well this Christmas to cultivate a greater trust in God's timing. Mary shows us that trusting in God's timing leads to unexpected blessings. I wonder what blessings you may have never received because you tried to take control instead of entrusting in God's plan. The Christmas story teaches us that that someone is in control. It's not Herod. It's God. And it's actually much better that way. You know, Herod wouldn't be the last Jewish leader to try to take control of Jesus' life. The baby Jesus grew up to be a man. He was 33 years old in Jerusalem. And the religious leaders, the high priest, like Herod, they felt threatened by Jesus. They didn't like his popularity. They didn't like his interpretation of the scriptures. And so they tried to control him by killing him. That'll shut him up, they thought. He'll be done for, and and we can go back to being the leading religious voices in our community. And like Herod, they learned that control is a myth. Because death could not control Jesus. The one that was born on Christmas, was killed on Good Friday, was raised from the dead by God on Easter Sunday. God showed not just the religious leaders, but he showed the entire world that he is the one who is truly in control. He is the one who holds the keys of life and death. He is the one who holds the whole world in his hand. May we not forget that this Christmas. Would you pray with me? Father, you are God and we are not. You are in control. We have the illusion of control. We we think that we're in control. But God, I pray that so much of the frustration and disappointment that we experience, and oftentimes it's around the holiday season, is a result of us from trying to take control instead of giving up control. God, I pray that we would surrender our lives to you. We would surrender control to you. You came to earth to be our Savior, but more than that, you came to be a king, to be Lord of all. And God, I pray that your lordship would reign supreme in our hearts. If there's anyone here today who's never surrendered their life to you and trusted in Jesus Christ to be Savior and Lord, I pray that today would be that day. That every single one of us would come before you and bow before you as King, King of kings and Lord of lords, deserving and worthy of all praise. That's our prayer this Christmas. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.